Hello, 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 and welcome to Kicking and Streaming, the show where streaming originals and traditional cinema enter the ring for the ultimate showdown. I'm Bo. And I'm Chris. Are streaming originals the TV movies of the 21st century? Is cinema really different from movies? Is Netflix the future? These questions and more on... Kicking and Streaming. Kick, kicking and... You, you, need, you, need to say, you need to say it with me. No, I thought you... Okay, okay, hold on. Kicking and... Hold on. No, no. Okay. At the same time. Okay. Okay. One, two. Kicking and Streaming. Streaming. Okay. No. Here. No, okay. I'll, I'll count you in. All right. Hello. Hello. Hi, Chris. How you doing? Hello, Bo. I'm well. How are you? Chris, I'd like to invite you to... To welcome, dang it, Chris, <laughs> I welcome you. I welcome you to episode six of Kicking and Streaming. It's good to be here in episode six of Kicking and Streaming. And uh, thank you for having me, Bo. I welcome all, all you people out there. Uh, here, here in episode six, we're about to talk about Unfaithfully Yours, the Criterion film, and a Hulu original, Palm Springs. So, Chris, the movie that I assigned you was Unfaithfully Yours. Indeed. Take it away. Yes. Unfaithfully Yours. Uh, just a brief little synopsis here of the uh, story before I get into my personal journey with this film, which is which was a roller coaster. Uh, this is the story of, a, of an up-and-coming composer named Alfred, who uh, is very well-to-do, a very successful fella, married to a very attractive, much younger woman named Daphne. Uh, and they are... They are passionately in love. They dote on each other and whatnot. And uh, Alfred's brother-in-law, August, approaches him at the start of the film to tell him that while he was away, he employed a private detective to tail Alfred's wife, Daphne, and make sure she didn't get up to any shenanigans. And uh, August – and of course, uh, at, upon hearing this, Alfred is outraged. He, he goes on a tirade against private detectives, has a big fit. August tries to hand him documents – detailing the uh, records of what happened with Daphne while he was away. And he refuses to look at it. He tears it up, throws it in the trash. Uh, And over the course of, I'm going to say maybe the first uh, 30 minutes of the movie or so, uh, he basically is just trying to avoid at all costs having to confront the reality that his brother-in-law had his wife tailed. And uh, the, the papers keep coming back to him. So he throws them in the trash and... The, uh, the, the the hotel's private investigator, or as he refers to him in the film, the house dick, uh, finds the papers in the trash. And, uh, well, the, 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 the hotel works fine in the trash. Anyways, this private, de- this private detective brings the torn up uh, documents to Alfred, who then tears it up. <laughs> I'm getting, I'm getting all, I'm getting all beat by beat again. Basically, <laughs> uh, Alfred refuses to confront the possibility that she would have cheated on him. Eventually, he is forced to confront that reality. That, well, not the reality, the possibility that she could have cheated on him. And it eats at him. It eats at him, Bo. He's being, he's, he's, it, 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 it festers within him like a, like a, like a, like a, like a, like an old ham sandwich just rotting in the sun in his soul. And he tries to focus, but he can't. There's a great bit with a ham sandwich in this. That's right. <laughs> Actually, turkey breast. Never mind. I'm sorry. That's right. Turkey. On. It's a turkey sandwich. He hates turkey. No, yeah. So he he tries to focus. He tries to to continue on with his with his uh, with this big 
show he's going to be doing that night. And while he does this show, well, gosh, okay. So spoilers ahead, because I went into this not knowing the context of what happens next. So stop right now and watch the movie, because you really need to see this movie blind. I can't stress it enough. You've got to see it blind. If you have seen it, good for you. As he is com- as he is composing this, or not composing, conducting, as he is conducting this song, he starts to fantasize about possible reactions he could have to his wife's alleged infidelity, going through a series of gruesome, odd, bizarre, hilarious fantasies of revenge, of, of virtual self-immolation, of, of just acceptance and, and guilt and all this other stuff, playing through these different scenarios, all of which coincide quite nicely with the music he's playing. After which, uh, he finishes the, the concert and he runs back to his house and tries to <laughs> he tries to act out and, and make real some of his fantasies about revenge for this infidelity. And what follows is maybe the funniest, what is it, 20 minutes I've seen in my entire life. I can't stress how hard I was laughing at this, the final half hour of this film. And uh, basically, he's just trying and failing and realizing that these, these incredibly dramatic reactions that he imagined himself enacting uh, it, it doesn't go that well in real life. And of course, by the end, he finally confronts his wife about the possible infidelity and, and he learns the truth about what happened. That's, that's the story in a, in a, in a medium sized nutshell, a Brazil nut. In a Bra- <laughs> that's the story in a Brazil nut. Yes. And it's just as difficult to crack. I was going to say, so I went into this film I, I, th- I think I had heard and then subsequently very quickly forgotten that it was a black comedy. All I knew about it as I hit the play button was that it was a film starring Rex Harrison about a man who suspects that his wife may be cheating on him. And that's, that's all I had to go on. So as the film goes on, obviously it, it has elements of of uh, levity to it. There's plenty of funny dialogue, lots of really good insults thrown all over the place. We, I watched it with my wife, Jenny. We both noticed pretty early on, like, this is this is some sharp dialogue. These are some some really biting insults. But anyways, as it, as it progresses, as it goes along, I'm starting to sympathize with, with Rex. And then, well, Alfred, the actor's name is Rex. And Jenny's noticing just how sweet Daphne is. She's got to be the sweetest person ever she's just so kind and so gentle and and alfred's a bit of a hothead he's a bit uh overly dramatic anyways all of this to say as this as the story goes on he he puts on his concert his wife is watching uh <laughs> the private detective who tailed her and the tailor next door are watching emotionally uh he's got this big full audience and as he plays the camera slowly zooms in on his eye and I don't know if I was supposed to fall for this or if I was supposed to be in on it at this point. I thought it was transitioning to the future from that moment where it zooms in on his eye. Did you? Instead of going into a fantasy, I thought it was go- just, you know, later that night, you know, nice gentle crossfade. Uh, Jenny and I both thought that, actually. And so what, what follows next is, you know, him going through this very... Frankly, incredibly far-fetched and disturbing revenge plot. And at multiple moments, Jenny and I look at each other like, there's no way this would work. What is he doing? Yeah, I I was just going to say that this, 
this plot, which he is sort of smoothly and ludicrously enacting, uh-huh. one thing I think is so interesting about it is in a different movie, just this bit would be the center. Like this is easily the center of like a Agatha Christie style murder mystery, you know, far-fetched and convoluted enough yeah. to leave all sorts of clues, sort all sorts of like, how did they? And I just think it's interesting that it's almost, <laughs> as it turns out, kind of a throwaway bit of the movie. I mean, it's central, but you know, it's it's not the the meat of the film. Yeah, and yet it easily could have been the meat of another film. Yeah, I love how they played that off because it really, it, it, the, frankly, it felt like we were watching a completely different film for that dream sequence. So to, to get into a bit of detail here, he he arranges for his wife to go dancing with his assistant, Tony, who is the man that he suspects her of cavorting with, of having an affair with. And her reaction to it, once again, we're thinking she's such a sweet lady. She's like, clearly she wouldn't do anything. But in this sequence, she's like, oh, really? With Tony? You think so? And she's super into it. And we're like, what? What is happening? <laughs> And so then he goes into the bathroom, and I've got a clip I want to share early on, because this moment, <laughs> it was stretching our suspension of disbelief beyond capacity. We were we were ready to basically just say, okay, this movie went off the rails. This got really weird, really fast. Um, I'm going to play the clip. So this is part of his plan as he's or- orchestrating this this vengeance on his wife and Tony. He goes into the bathroom while his wife is on the phone talking to Tony and setting up the uh, their little date. <laughs> while, she, while she's setting up this date with Tony, he's in the bathroom pulling out this very high-tech, cutting-edge, I'm sure, for its time, recording this what, – what is it? A dictaphone bow? This, this device for uh, recording stuff onto a record and then allowing him to edit the audio. And at this point, you're, you, you, it's still not quite clear what his plan is, but it slowly starts to dawn on us as we're watching this sequence. And just imagine watching this scene. Uh, <laughs> he records himself. He, tur- he, he, he turns up the pitch to make his voice high to sound like his wife, Daphne. And, you know, I'm not exactly an audio expert, but I know enough about audio to know that it doesn't work like that. And so I'm thinking, like, wow, they expect me to buy this? Okay, so enough of that. Here's, you've had the little intro. Here is the film. Here's the clip. Help! 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 Stop! Tony! Stop! <laughs> so he turns up the dial to raise the pitch. Help! Yeah, very, very clearly not his voice. <laughs> yeah, it's a very convincing, shrill woman's cry for help. There's no amount of pitch modulation is going to make a man sound like that. And so at this point, Jenny and I are both just thinking like, like, what, what does this movie take us for? Like, this 
Is this like a fantasy? Like, is this a fantasy movie? Like, what is happening? And then he proceeds to set up this whole convoluted plot to have Tony come over. And then he... <laughs> so he goes into the... I can't believe that this is the... <laughs> You're right. What a... Going into it thinking that is the real sequence. This is... You did go on a roller coaster. I did. This and movie I... must have been one of the wildest experiences you've ever had. <laughs> It was. It's going to go down in history as one of my most memorable viewings of any movie, because and I'm look. I look at the time code and I see that it, you know there's still like a you know 45 <laughs> minutes left. And I'm thinking like this, this is escalating real quick for the halfway point. And uh, the part that really got us is his wife is lying on the bed, all sultry, talking to. I think she was finished talking to Tony at that point actually, and uh, Arthur comes in with a with a straight edge razor that we see him sharpening in the bathroom. And again, as he's doing that, we're thinking, like, is he going to – no, he wouldn't. He wouldn't do that. And, of course, he, he goes into the room where she's lying down and he, happening off screen, he cackles madly <laughs> as he slashes her over and over and over again, killing her. It's very dark. Yeah. it's And and he's laughing and the music – you can kind of hear it in that last clip. That Except that's not the song. But, you know, it's that kind of like – championing fanfare and, and we're just like descending into madness at this point we're like what is oh my gosh like is it is she in on it somehow like what is what is happening and then he invites uh, tony over he sets it up so that tony will stumble in and find her body and then he'll play the record he just recorded in that clip so it sounds like tony is murdering her over a phone that gets knocked off the the shelf and he's downstairs in the lobby as as people take the call and it cuts very quickly and it, it cuts back up to the to the murder scene <laughs> with his, his wife dead on the bed and Tony's all locked up. And he's like, I didn't do it, Alfred. You know I couldn't have done it. And Alfred's just, oh, Tony, why would you do it, Tony? <laughs> it's just this really oafish, doofy delivery of this, oh, Tony, why? Why would you do that? And then, it, and then I'm not kidding. This is, I'm embarrassed to say it. But the moment, the moment... <laughs> The moment that it dawned on us that this was a dream sequence and not really happening was the moment that he's in court <laughs> and they sentence him to, you know, what was it, life in jail or death or, you know, something bad. And then the camera zooms in on Alfred's face as he's cackling in the in the courtroom, just, ah, 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 and we just, <laughs> we, we're, I look at Jenny, we're like, wait a second. He wouldn't laugh in court. This is a dream. <laughs> he wouldn't laugh in court. <laughs> and that's the moment I knew. Oh, my And word. then, of course, it zooms back out from his eye, and we're just like, oh, my gosh. But they sell it. It's like, I counted. It's like 15 minutes of an hour and 45 minutes. It's a, it's a hefty chunk for a dream sequence. Probably the longest dream sequence I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah. And it was... Uh I think 25 minutes. Oh my goodness. Um he spends fantasizing in his little in his in his three different fantasies that he has. Mhm. Coordinating with the music like we said that he's that he's conducting. Yeah. Which is a nice, you know, it's a nice fantasia-esque touch. He as he you know, yeah. he conducts the the first one which is just vibrant and angry and I love as well that you know, afterward, even even August, who's you know who doesn't appreciate music at all, 
and is bored stiff by having to go to these concerts is, you know, moved and people, someone comes up to him as he's like changing his shirt in between, uh, in between pieces and asks him, you know, like, what was the emotions? Like it was so, what eternal visions were in your mind when you played that? (laughs) And he says something like, oh, you'd be surprised. (laughs) If you knew it would boggle your mind. Yeah, something. Yeah. And uh, yeah, then he goes and plays the the very maudlin piece, right? And then and that one, he's, it's all, you know, it's it's such a clever and and satirical movie. And once you are keyed in to the fact that these are fantasy sequences, it's it's very brilliant because you get to see. I, I was mentioning to you just before we started recording that in the Criterion version, Terry Jones of Monty Python does the the intro, uh huh, and he talks about. How for him, the movie is about, well, at least one of the things it's about is masculine self-regard, sort of a, a satire of the way like a great ego kind of examines himself and goes through these emotions. And you do get to see, I mean, it's it's the sort of passive aggressive, like shower comeback zingers that we've all kind of experienced where you sit there and you fantasize like... <laughs> what you would do or how you would handle this situation. And in your mind, you know, yeah, you say it, it's essentially like a dream. So the, the characters just do as you want them to do, which I think Linda Darnell does uh, playing Daphne does a great job of being, yeah, uh, being whatever sort of wife she's supposed to be in whichever fantasy <laughs> That he's put her in. Yeah. You know, the reality we see of her is that she's just this totally sweet, doting wife who's absolutely passionately in love with with uh, Sir Alfred. But in the various fantasy sequences, you know, we get to see her be very devious, uh, plotting and malicious or just full of mournful regret or in absolute awe at his uh, <laughs> at his, you know, at his power and his, his anger, yeah, just begging and, and just so cowed, cowed by no, him. Yeah, yeah. And what I think is great about that is despite the fact that she is a, a sweet, uh, you know, wonderful wife to him, it, in the reality, when, when things start to, you know, not go at all how he fantasized, even there, she's despite her sweetness and her deference to him... Mm-hmm. She's she's not having any of his nonsense. You know, she calls him out on his ridiculousness. Yeah. And just every yeah. little petty thing he tries to do, she just she just doesn't take any of it. <laughs> yeah, Which I is love such the sharp contrast from the the fantasy version of her. It's yeah, it's fantastic. I think I don't think I've ever seen a movie do a better job of the whole expectations versus reality side of things because. Yeah, when in his first fantasy, when he tells her to invite Tony to go dancing, her you know her demeanor is just oh, is that. Is that what you want, Alfred? Oh, well, if you insist. <laughs> Just clearly this sultry, cheating, you know, this, 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 this woman who's, who's out to get into mischief. And then in reality, when he makes the same proposal, he's like, why didn't you take Tony dancing? And she said, and she's just like, are you serious? Have you seen how Tony dances? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's terrible. He's like, it's just, yeah, she's not putting up with any of it. And it's, I appreciate that she pushes back, even when he gets really thunderous, even early in the film, when he when he kind of yells and snaps and gets kind of short. I mean, it hits her emotionally, but yeah, she doesn't just she doesn't just sit there and take it. She she pushes back, and it, it, some of the funniest lines come from her just reacting to his absurd nonsense. Yeah, and I love when he gets 
when he gets cornered in in anger and with his with that you know razor sharp Rex Harrison voice and the sharp dialogue and everything he gets to say those lines whenever he's in anger that are, that he just becomes so petty like when he grabs August at the beginning so angry that he's set up some sluicing hound to follow his wife yeah. <laughs> and August says I think you mean sleuthing <laughs> you know and he, he has the bit where in his, when he's getting called out in this reality after all of his fantasies and he he just get you know she she feels his head to see if he's feverish because he's acting so strangely and he, and he just just so petty like a toddler i don't wish to have my head felt you know <laughs> yeah. and then she says oh it's okay you know he's being all beastly and she said and she forgives him and he, and he says he says no i f- i forbid you to forgive me of anything <laughs> Just, just so petulant. Yeah, yeah. He's a, he's an absolute child at his peak emotional moments, which really coincides quite nicely with the absurd cartoonishness of his fantasies. Yes, it, it, it gave me a flashback to when I, I remember when I was in I think it was fourth grade. I had a crush on two girls in elementary school, and it's weird. It wasn't a dream. It was just a fantasy I'd had. It was just a just you know daydreaming. But I, I, I distinctly remember what I imagined, which was me stepping off a bus with a leather jacket, my hair kind of greased back because I'd watched a lot of Happy Days, <laughs> and I step off, and the two girls I like are just thinking like, wow, Chris is so cute, I want to marry him. No, I want to marry him. And then I said, ladies, ladies, please, there's plenty of Chris to go around. <laughs> and, that, and that was this, this vivid fantasy that I remembered of just like, oh yeah, I got it. But of course, you look at any of my school pictures, I... I had the head of a turtle and the body of a sea lion. You know, trying to, I'm trying to imagine that. And I had just I was just this awkward, gimpy, weird kid. And of course, I was way too terrified to speak to either of those two girls. So it's just funny that, you know, his his revenge fantasies are about on par with what I fantasized about as a fourth grader. Just kind of this like, yeah, I would I would do that. I feel like I'm supposed to cut in on your self-deprecating and correct you. <laughs> It, right, Bo? But uh, you know, this just this just isn't the podcast for that. <laughs> I'm so I'm so talentless and and sad, Bo. <laughs> right. Uh, I I want to talk a little bit about this. Isn't um, speaking of things that this isn't the podcast for. Uh, this isn't exactly a podcast where we go um, meticulously into you know backstories and how this was made and all that kind of stuff you know we're more about the substance of what's in there it's nice to get a little taste but i want to talk just a little bit about preston sturgis the writer director yeah yeah so preston sturgis comes in he's uh, first he's he's a screenwriter which i think is obvious from the quality of uh, the you know the, the scenarios but especially the dialogue that we're getting yeah you know it's it's just crackerjack dialogue all the way through. Agreed. And so he starts out as a screenwriter and he's having a lot of success there. And then he gets to direct a film. And then he does this amazing thing where he pulls off an absolutely incredible seven hits in like three and a half years. Really? Yes. He, yeah, he, he writes and directs like seven... Uh, comedies, phenomenal comedies. You know, I mean, several of his movies are in the Criterion Collection. Many of them lauded as the greatest comedies of all time. The Lady Eve, Sullivan's Travels, uh, 
The Miracle at Morgan's Creek, Christmas in July. There's a there's a bunch. All right, well, I got some and watching to do. Um, Unfaithfully Yours comes a little bit later, um, after his kind of hot streak. And Unfaithfully Yours, he's with a new studio, and it falls into sort of a little bit of battles with the studio, and it's it's sort of sad because Sturgis ends up uh, having some self-doubt as he's sort of battling for final cut and kind of wondering, like, maybe I don't really have what it takes anymore. Maybe it was Daryl Zanuck who was the the producer who was the studio head who was, you know, kind of meddling. And, and Zanuck ends up getting final cut of this film. Really? Uh, despite despite Sturgis's, huh. you know, uh, rampant success before. And the thing is, this film, this film flops. Really? This film flops uh, quite... Quite badly, because, uh, I mean, there's a couple reasons. Like, number one, you know, people talk about it being ahead of its time. I find that phrase sort of irks me. But, you know, I mean, it's it's dark. It has, as we've seen, the potential to confuse people. <laughs> um, and as well, it's marketing turned into kind of a mess, not to go too hmm. far down dark truths. But right as this movie is about to come out... Uh, a beautiful actress commits suicide. Ooh. Rex Harrison finds her, and it's sort of blamed in the tabloids on Rex Harrison that he sort of like slipped to the pills. So here we've got a movie coming out in which Rex Harrison fantasizes about murdering his wife, and we have a girlfriend of Rex Harrison's who actually commits suicide. And so that really changed the marketing and they dialed it back and they sort of started marketing it as ironically from what you said as a murder mystery. Oh man. So they, they're trying to push it kind of as a murder mystery and people who are maybe used to Sturge's comedies are thinking, Oh, this isn't, you know, and so it gets caught up in this weird thing and, and then just becomes a flop. And for years afterward, it's still considered by many, I, I frequently come across this people saying, Oh yeah, unfaithful yours. That's, you know, that's not one of the great Sturgis films. Like, there's his great films, and then there's Unfaithfully Yours. Whereas, as much as I like many of his films, for me, uh, and I'm, I haven't seen them all yet, but for me, Unfaithfully Yours is right up at the top there. I mean, I think it's it feels modern in so many ways. It's, it's so sharp. It's cutting. It's got its satire. Um, great lines abound. You know, the whole concept is fun. And surprisingly, uh, still pretty unique. I mean, I haven't. It hasn't been. You'd think it had been really ripped, ripped off by now. I mean, there has been a remake yeah. of this film in 1984. Yeah, 84, right? Yeah, yeah. Th- this is the the sort of level of genius that we're dealing with here. And I think it's interesting because he definitely plays with. I was watching an interview with his wife where she talks with his his last wife, and she talks about how. Yeah, he was, you know, he was prone to kind of flamboyant, melodramatic jealousy at times, you know, where he would, she would want to go off to the movies and he would kind of be like, oh, okay then, yeah, go, you know, leave me, leave me here alone. You go, you go have fun. No, no, you go, you go off, you know, (laughs) just leave me here. I'm just an old man, you know, who knows how long I'm going to be here, but you go ahead, you know, you know, she said he was prone to these sort of things. And so clearly he's... He's aware yeah. of this. And I think it's interesting because I think there's a reading of this film where you could talk where it's kind of a comedy about control, right? Uh-huh. You've got a great conductor 
who maybe like a great director is able to stand up there and pull this amazing performance from an orchestra. Mm -hmm. You know, he's controlling these things, but controlling his own emotions, controlling, you know, the affections of the people around him. Yeah. He can't do that, you know, or not as well. And so that's where some of the comedy comes in. And I think this film is is very funny at the way it, it pokes it at Rex Harrison, who despite, you know, I mean, he gets to be, despite all the darkness, you know, the fact that he's fantasizing, you know, he's actually, when he gets back, he actually does go through the motions of sharpening the razor and, Ugh. you know, and pulling out the, the gun. I, I want to talk about and that And doing scene. all these things. But I don't think, at least for me, I never really lose sympathy with him. I mean, you, you don't think that he's, yeah, <laughs> you know, the sharpest, most stalwart <laughs> guy out there. But, you know, he doesn't become... Uh, an object of your of your scorn as you watch the film. You know, you're very much he's right. He's still our hero throughout the film, which which is an achievement. Yeah, considering he fantasizes about killing his wife. That's the, yeah. The fact that you're you're rooting for him at some point when he when he goes home and starts to try and act it out. I wanted to I wanted to point out this again the expectations versus reality side of it. Uh, we, you know, he's fantasizing it to the tune of the song that he's conducting. It's, you know, like you said, boisterous, thunderous, powerful, angry, emotional song. And when he's fiddling with his house, trying to pull out this dictaphone, this recorder, to start recording his his high-pitched version of his wife's calls for help. Yeah. Uh, you get this music that's like, just this very silly, I don't know if it was like an oboe or something, just this thumping, plodding kind of like, just this goofy, stupid song to go along with this man who, you know, for all intents and purposes, would be fairly dignified and above stooping to this kind of nonsense. And the, I, I honestly think one of the, and I, I, I swear this is like in some books, I mean, you can't have rules necessarily when it comes to comedy, but there are tried and true formulas. And I think one of the one of the most useful tools in comedy is repetition, if done properly. And I don't think I have ever seen repetition done to greater effect than in this film. Uh, specifically, two moments, uh, one of which is as he's fumbling through his house trying to grab stuff, he knocks his phone off of the holder thing probably, what, seven or eight times, I think? And each time he knocks it off, you get a voice saying, uh, number, please. <laughs> Would you like to call a number? Number, please. And each time he's like, I don't want a number. <laughs> he's like slamming it down. And and it's just by the seventh or eighth time or whatever that it's coming through, I'm just in tears because like it's this it's this exquisite hell that he's in. And when he's when he's fiddling with the dictaphone, trying to get it to work <laughs> and it's I had these Vietnam flashbacks to me trying to set up my my stereo system, my sound system for my TV, which I still haven't figured out, by the way. I still can't get surround sound to come through it. What I was thinking of is us trying to record these podcasts. (laughs) All the little technical foibles that we go through, especially because as he's going through, there's a great bit as he's going through... The instruction manual, the big convoluted instruction manual for his dictaphone machine. (laughs) It's like every other sentence is, it's so easy. It's so simple. It does the work for you. And it obviously (laughs) could not be more complex. I don't know where they got that machine that they use, but 
I mean, the thing, it's just an intimidating looking, even in his fantasy sequence when he's running it smoothly, you're looking at all the dials and knobs and buttons going, my word. Yeah. And yeah, who could possibly in reality as he's trying to deal with it, which by the way, I also love the fact that in reality, it's not where he remembers that it is <laughs> when he goes to look for That's it. That's right. He has to go to like he has to, he has to search like three cupboards before he finds where it actually is, <laughs> which I think is is also a nice touch about all these assumptions that we yeah you know that we have all these things that we're sure of how how it would go if if we'd had the <laughs> control that we wanted exactly yeah and just and uh, him hunched on the floor sitting sitting on the floor surrounded by broken furniture from all this stuff that he's crashed through trying to get this thing set up. And he's just he's sitting on the floor like a child. He looks like a like a six year old sitting next to this dictaphone thing. And he keeps trying to he hits the record button, starts to say, Help! Murder! Help! And as he does it, this thing grabs the, the record, flips it over, and just tosses it over the side. And so he's constantly wrestling with it and trying to get it to stay put. And you know, they say they say good comedy comes in threes. I disagree with that. I think that that's a I think that's a safety measure. I think that's 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 for that's easy. That's that's pleb comedy. The, this one, the I think yeah, he sees the words. It's so simple in this manual. Probably again six or seven times. Each time it's like, don't forget to turn the flanger to the diddly bop yeah. and the boop, 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 all these crazy long words. And just about it's childishly simple. Anyone could do it. It works for you. Yeah, and it's just each time I see it, I laugh harder. I could have. I could have literally died laughing if they had just kept going. If that sequence would have been another 30 minutes long of him just fiddling with this thing, I would have been dead. I, it could, I don't think there was See, any fall-off point. This is really interesting to me. And I wonder, I wonder if, because, okay, I'll tell you, uh, Terry Jones in the, that introduction talks about how he, sa- he says Rex Harrison, let's face it, isn't a slapstick actor. And so he thinks when the film reaches the slapstick portion, it sort of loses its steam. And I don't go as far as Terry, but I will say that some of the messing about on the chairs before he gets down to the dictaphone, I found a little bit, for me, it's it's the one kind of, in in a film which I think is, like we've been saying, just razor sharp all the way through. It's, it's the one little section of the film that I find a, a little bit tedious, a little bit long-winded. Um, and I, I find it interesting that that's, you know, it's your, it's your clearly yeah. your favorite part of the film is this, is this sequence. So what I was going to ask is if you agree about Rex Harrison's ability to do slapstick. Yeah. And what do you think? I mean, do you think he, that's a good he pulls question. it all off, I mean, I'm assuming, in your estimation? When I think about his performance, specifically in the comedy section, I I will admit uh, he doesn't he doesn't really ham it up he doesn't really cheese it up very much no he he plays it pretty straight and I think somehow in some weird way that actually made it funnier to me that you know he could have pulled a, a curly Howard and been why you little and yeah. kind of gone after it a bit more but the fact that this man who no. through his own actions seems incapable of admitting how stupid this is sorry go ahead i cut you off well no no i'm i'm just i was just i was only going to agree with you i guess i think that i did find a couple of those sections slightly drawn out yeah yeah um with the with the chairs and so on uh the first time i watched it 
knowing it was coming, I think you just sort of run in and, and embrace it. But uh, but I didn't agree with Terry Jones. I do think that Rex Harrison pulls it off because this role needs his balance of, I think he pulls off so well this idea of he's he's sort of dignified by default and he's got that that accent, you know, his, his crisp uh, received pronunciation accent. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is Rex Harrison who's going to play Henry Higgins in a you know, in a, in several years, in My Fair Lady, yeah, paragon of class, right? So he's he's got this, you know, great sophisticated voice, and and he's a conductor of classical music, and he's got you know this very upright bearing, but through a lot of the film, he's being either sort of silly and vulnerable with his wife, or he's being really petty and childish, and he's going through all these fantasies, and his fantasies are. You know, even when they're running smoothly, are very sort of flamboyant and ridiculous. And then, obviously, when he tries to pull them off, he's hapless and he and he can't, you know, he can't reach any of his yeah any of the things that he imagined. He doesn't get any close to any of them. Yeah, and I think that takes you know, I think you have to play that very straight in order for that to work. You know, exactly. Any amount exactly. of winking at the camera would make the character unbearable, I think. Yeah, the, the, the fact that he, that he plays it so straight and so, yeah, just so straight-laced, uh, with, with, with the fantasy sequences, his, his overacting and his flamboyance and stuff is suitable. But I, I, I love that it's, it's, a, it's a complete inverse. When, it, when, it, when it's reality, right. suddenly he is just grouchy and very serious and very focused and trying to do it, and everything is just falling apart around him due largely to his own clumsy incompetence uh, in contrast to how cool he thought he was. Yeah, I, I somehow, I, I think his performance didn't stand out to me because it was the comedy of the entire scenario that had me just bawling with laughter, uh, which to that extent, I think that he did do a good job. And as you're saying, he it could have easily descended into almost crass territory of, of – you know, patronizing comedy. It makes me think a bit of, I don't know if any of our many, many, many listeners uh, enjoy watching the TV show Family Guy. Uh, not for everybody, obviously, but that show has a knack for doing little cutaways to little side bits. And sometimes those side bits will go on for absurdly long. And sometimes they'll loop back around to being like, why are they dragging it on this long? Okay, now it's funny again. But a lot of the times it, it can... Uh, it can go a little off the rails. And that show is constantly winking at the audience. I don't think they've ever played a scene as straight as Harrison played in this scene. But I will say if there's anybody who's a fan of, I don't know, there's some, maybe there's some niche. And, you know, who knows? I might not even find it as funny the second time. One of my greatest uh, embarrassments is that I loved the barrel chase scene in Desolation of Smog. That's That was like one of the last moments where I allowed myself to enjoy a movie without thinking about it. Yeesh. Yeah. Oh, golly. Um, would that I could go back and hit myself. I can't imagine you because going – watching this film again, that I think this film has enormous uh, rewatchability. Yeah. In part because there's so many, so many little throwaway gags. And Preston Sturgis had a policy where on set, anyone who came up with a gag – 
uh, got 50 cents. <laughs> so anyone that came up with like a funny bit of business or a little gag. But on top of that, his writing is so sharp. And he's thought these things out. You know, uh, he was the sort of director that he didn't leave a lot open to interpretation. Like he told the he told the the actors, you know, exactly mm. what cadence to deliver their line in, how to gesture, all these sort of things Interesting. Were, were thought up in his mind. And I wanted to talk about, because the, in this movie, we, you know, we tend to focus and remember, I think, the, those two things, the, the fantasy sequences and then the, um, the prolonged uh, slapstick bit where he's trying to enact them before anyone gets home. Yeah. And the thing that I think is interesting is there's actually a fair bit of film that isn't either of those things. And what mm-hmm. you know what's going on during that time. And what's going on is a lot of the the sort of <laughs> Preston Sturgis gold that uh made him so famous. And one of the things I like about Preston Sturgis and it's something that the the Cohen brothers do very well. That um, in literature Charles Dickens did is that Preston Sturgis never wastes a side character. <laughs> Number one, he would use a sort of stock group of actors that he just carried with him from film to film. Uh huh. Um, and so you know they obviously had uh, comfort uh, working together and. And they, you know, it's it's all these eccentrics. But I want to let's uh, just let the movie do a little bit of the talking. If we could pull up my clip, yeah. And the clip that I have here is this is when uh, Rex Harrison's character, Sir Alfred, has been continually confronted with the fact that through a mistake. Um, August misunderstood him and had him had his wife tailed as we as we've talked about. And there's this document that people keep trying to present to him that explains what happened. And he keeps ripping it up and so on as we as we've talked about. And finally, he goes to the detective who he wants to, which the detective is also a, a great character. But he goes to the detective and he wants to chew him out. Yeah. <laughs> and Walking into the detective's office, he mistakenly goes to the the first man he sees, thinking that it is the detective, and just starts on his tirade. And that's the clip we've got here. You are Mr. Sweeney? Who, me? I'm Arthur Bryan. What do you want to see him about? About business, I suppose. I suppose you'd call this a business. Well, what would you call it? I'd call it a criminal invasion of the rights of decent people. An assault upon the very privacy which is the cornerstone of self-respect. An infamous pursuit without shame or ethics. A vile calling masquerading in the cloak of respectability that actually sprung from the cesspools of humanity. Look, mister. Seepage of civilization. Does that answer your question? Look, mister, I'm the tailor from next door. I'm just here to eat my lunch. I mean, I was trying to eat my lunch and answer the telephone. A favor, that's all. With much of what you've got to say, and believe me, whatever you are doing, you're wasting your time. You should be in Congress. Confidentially, I agree. But what good is that going to do you? About a blue serge suit, my opinion is quite something. But from ethics... Then where is the director of this enterprise? Here he is now, climbing. Tell him. Good day. Good day. So this is actually one of the tamer examples, but... 
this this Taylor, he gets this funny bit of business with he's trying to eat his sandwich throughout that whole speech. Then he gets upset and he has this line about, you know, I should be in Congress, even though he agrees with him. And then the Taylor goes on to be this fun little character that we get to see because he ends up getting tickets to the concert and and he doesn't quite know how to behave at the concert. And uh it's a, it's a memorable little part. And like I said, one of the tamer ones. There's so many people that I could have pointed to. The manager with his outrageous accent. The, the uh, I don't know what you call someone who plays the the cymbals in an orchestra, but that person. Oh, the, the, the cymbal man. Yeah. The cymbalist. Um, and the, you know, the, the brother-in-law and the sister-in-law and the detective and... The house dick and so many little parts and and people that you that you run into. Uh, Everyone all, gets a chance to make you laugh at one. Yeah, point oh, his another. his 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 valet, his his manservant, Jules. You know, I mean, they all have these great <laughs> lines, like things that in in other movies would have been lines that you that you know that you would remember. But there's so many of them in in this one that you just are sort of washed over and. And all of the and yeah. all of the wit, and I think this is very interesting the way that Preston Sturgis does this. And like I said, it makes me think of Dickens and the Coen Brothers. Where in other movies, I think you know you can you would just sort of have you wouldn't even think about these characters. Sometimes it would be like oh, and then he goes and <clears throat> you know and he um, gets a he runs into someone that tells him to you know that, that they went that away or somebody goes and buys a ticket to, you know to get in it's just some it's just something that you would have your main character quickly interact with so that you can move the story along but uh, for some directors i think they they see the eccentricities in people and the thing that i like and sturgis cohen's and dickens all cohen the cohen brothers and dickens all do this is that it's never uh, malicious, like you don't, you're, you're never meant to. It's mm. not making fun of these people. It's we're all sort of laughing together at their at their at their little foibles, at their eccentricities, at their turns of phrase, at their accents, at their. But it's yeah. not mean spirited. It's all just sort of all these eccentric oddballs coming together in this tapestry of sort of madcap humanity. Yeah, it lends the world of the movie kind of this lighthearted texture. Uh, it makes it feel more alive and more and more fun. Makes it feel like yeah, it it it, it paints a view of humanity that is very spirited and in a way kind of optimistic. Yeah, and it's that it's that screwball genre that we don't really see anymore. Yeah, as well. Yeah, in in terms of Sturgis, I think the Coen brothers have have been able to turn that into drama and into their own you know quirky quirky comedies, but we don't really get the energy of, of screwball comedies anymore. It's true. Well, and I was going to point out the, gosh, that, that's that clip you shared reminded me of just how good the dialogue was. There's, there's this little snippet right at the start where he says, he, 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 he says, uh, you know, what's this about? And he says, it's about business. I suppose, I suppose you would call this a business. And it's just, I'm, I'm jealous of how well-written yeah. that is. That's the thing is it's, it's the sort of comedy where you can tell that this guy is a screenwriter because you can tell that he, you know, he's throwing away lines on the Rex Harrison character who's not even the guy who gets to be funny. He's he's speaking eloquently and, you know, with a different change of music and so on, you could have these lines in a drama. The lines that Rex Harrison gives when he's going on these speeches, you know, the speech that the Taylor says confidential or he says, you know, you should go stop what you're doing and, and you know, and go to Congress. 
like because he he's able to work with you know alliterations and turns of turns of phrase and all this. Uh huh. Um, and so it's it's that wit and energy that he puts in, and all these eccentrics that he pumps in, that allows you to see just what he can do. And I agree, it's the sort of thing that as a writer you look at with with jealousy. You know, you could see that it in another world he could be spitting out you know poetry probably and here he is as well doing these you know these very sharp comedies yeah man i keep thinking now about what you mentioned about he never wastes a side character because and the fact that you mentioned coen brothers it makes me realize that technique of giving it's not it's not like uh you know, it's not like Aaron Sorkin where every single character is just clever and sharp and has the perfect thing to say. No, because but they're every all character unique. Is interesting and fun. Yeah, yeah, they're all very. They're they're so unique. The tailor and the the private detective who works next door to him are both like they're characters out of Alice in Wonderland. You know, it's the, it, it makes me think of that scene uh, mentioning Coen Brothers, slightly tangential. That moment in Raising Arizona when uh, you know the 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 two crooks have stolen i mean if anybody hasn't seen raising arizona these two crooks have kidnapped a baby and they realize they want to get balloons for him and so they stop into a store and he runs up to the clerk and he holds him up and he, he's, he's like give me give me some balloons and the guy gives them to him and he says Do these blow up into funny shapes and the clerk says nope unless round is funny <laughs> <laughs> and this this guy this clerk is not He's not in the movie more than that, you know. Occasionally, you know, and when he when he says this is a this is a stick up, he's like, okay then, and it's just yeah, it's just these throwaway little bits that they the the whole world feels more fantastical, more interesting. And I'm realizing watching movies like Unfaithfully Yours and like most Cohen films, I'm completely awake and not in the I mean in both the literal sense and the figurative sense. Each scene, I know that something could happen that I have never seen before, even if it's just yes. from some side character. Yeah, that's exactly it. Because there's so many singular characters that are that are unique that, exactly, it can just take your expectations anywhere. Every scene in this movie can just sort of fly off the rails, yeah. in a sense. Yeah. And that is that does make for very engaged watching. It does. And... Uh, by the way, the Coen brothers, I mean, it's it's no accident. They're they're big Preston Sturges fans. Oh. In fact, um, in one of the big, one of the most famous Preston Sturges films, Sullivan's Travels, it's about the making of a movie called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Oh, no, you're kidding. Which is, of course, what the Coen brothers went on to name one of their movies. So, yeah, they're, they're fans. That's that's amazing. I always wonder where they got that title from. Yeah. Uh, this is one of those movies. It's it's fun to talk about, but um, it, it's it's really a movie that you that you need to sit down and watch because what we could sit here doing, and what this is threatening to devolve to, <laughs> is just reminiscing over all the parts that made us laugh. Yeah. Like we could just sit here throwing lines back and forth that we thought were <laughs> hilarious true. or little character moments. Yeah, um, I sincerely because that's the kind of movie it is. It's very rich that way. Exactly. Yeah, it's absolutely loaded. Uh, I remember, uh, again, this is only tangentially related, but I was watching a making of for Animal House, which is a National Lampoon film, totally different kind of comedy. But they talked about how in the theaters, they couldn't, they, they were upset because the audience was missing two thirds of the jokes because the jokes came so fast and were so funny that people were laughing through dialogue that would have gotten just as good of a laugh. And that's 
I can say the same for this movie. Um, there's there's a lot of fun to be had when it yeah. and it it takes its time. You know, it's it doesn't feel like a rushed movie. It doesn't feel like it's desperately trying to make you laugh. You know, you see some comedies. I think especially nowadays, I don't want to be a you know clutching my pearls and 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 moping about the good old days. They don't make movies like they used to, but I do think that most modern comedy now has an air of desperation to it where there's kind of this tongue in cheek lamp shading looking at the audience to check if we're cool with how stupid it is lots of lots of silliness and yeah yeah it's hard to find a comedy with the kind of confidence that a movie like unfaithfully yours has where yeah it, it, it it lives purely on the merits of its its writing and its characters yeah and i think that's a bit that's coming off of craft you know like we this is yeah. Sturgis who you know I don't know where he began versus where he ends up in terms of what his talent was but it's probably safe to say that in all of his experience he improved and mm-hmm. so you know he starts out as a screenwriter he directs you know several and he's really really honed his craft by the time we're we're tuning in here and you know it reminds me a little bit in its richness and in the details that sort of don't have to be there you know, this isn't the comedy. This isn't a comedy where, because I, I think you could go through this film and you could trim out a lot of jokes and a lot of side characters, and it wouldn't necessarily take away from the film. In the same way that you know you can, you know, like a great recipe, and you could take out you know a bit of the oregano, or you don't have to quite you know brulee it with you know, and and yeah, it would taste reasonably the same. It would still be good, but it's these extra details, and it reminds me of. Um, in you'll know exactly what I talk about when I say bumping the lamp. Uh, yeah. Um, there's a moment talking about where what's the name of the channel, Captain? Uh, oh, geez, Captain um, Christian. Is it Captain Christian? Christian, yeah. He he's uh, he. Um, it's a YouTube channel uh, worth checking out where he critiques uh, animation, animated films, and he's talking about. You hear that, Captain Christian? We scratch your back, you scratch yeah, ours. There you go. Yeah, well, gave, gave you a shout out. You know, do the right thing. Crossover. <laughs> but in it, talking about uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is uh, another movie that I think we're both fans of, and there's a moment where, as they're going through all these details of making, it's a, it's a. For those who haven't seen it, it's a mixture of live action and animation, and hand drawn animation, and so to make those work and seem as though they exist in the same world. They're trying all these different things. But the point is made about a scene where uh, an overhanging, an overhead light lamp gets jostled. And because of that, starts kind of pitching wildly around the room. This is an actual lamp. And so it is messing with the shadows and, and wreaking havoc on the lighting. And they keep that scene. They do that intentionally. And then animate the the you know the character of Roger Rabbit, who is a cartoon rabbit, to have matching lighting to go with all this chaos that's going on. And it's one of these things where they did not need yeah. to do that. Like there's nothing that nobody would have complained or even known that they were missing anything by not having that happen. And it just created a lot of work for them. But it adds a richness and detail and realism to the illusion that they're trying to pull off. And I think that's yeah. a similar thing to what's happening with Preston Sturgis in a different way. By making all these characters singular, you know, even just throwaway scenes like at the beginning when they're waiting for 
um, Sir Alfred to arrive on a plane and there's these different characters that have to interact in an airport and there's a, I don't know what he is, uh, some kind of secretary that's telling them, uh, you know, when the flight's going to arrive. There's all these little bits and humor and things that just add to that that flavor. And I think it's yeah. sort of the comedic version of bumping the lamp. Yeah. I think that's spot on. The uh, The amount of love and care they put into it is what makes a movie permanent in the minds of the people who see it. Uh, and, and again, like you say, it's almost subliminal. Uh, you, you don't you don't notice it at the time, really. You, you notice it when you're looking for it. But unbeknownst to you, it is making you believe more in the story that it's telling. And, you know, there's a reason, for instance, that the Lord of the Rings trilogy is as beloved as it is because that's another movie where there's lots of things where it's like, oh, you didn't – they didn't have to do that. They didn't have to hand carve these blades and, and inscribe elvish literature into the hilt and stuff like that, you know. But it's just it, – it, it all adds up to something that you want to live in. Yeah. And it's the sum total. It's those things that you could be skeptical about if you heard about them in isolation thinking, well, you know, I don't think you really – no one's going to notice. Yeah. But the overall effect does its thing. So there, there's – I would be remiss if we didn't mention what for me is the most bizarre element of this film. <laughs> and so I just – I have to – I have to get your take on it. Yes. The sound in this movie, the sound design is so strange. <laughs> the I mean I assume you know what I'm talking about. The zipper, the sandwich, the glove, the hairs. Yeah. <laughs> there's these goofy especially by the time we're in the in the that sort of zany um and even zany feels like the wrong word with the way that Rex Harrison plays it but that sort of zany uh scene where he's basically trashing his apartment trying to enact the fantasies that he's envisioned for his wife's return uh and by that time, when he pulls out his hairs to test the razor and you hear like a ridiculous like whoop, whoop, <laughs> every time he pulls out a hair, it, you're all, you're like kind of ready for it. And the music is already kind of goofy. But there's so many times where it's like a relatively dramatic moment. And then you'll someone will pull out. I mean, I can't even mimic these sounds. They're so bizarre. Yeah. I, the part that I first thought of when you mentioned the sound design was when Daphne, his wife, pulls out her, her coin purse, her little her little yeah. wallet. And she unzips it and it's this – like this massive like, yeah. whoa, earth-shattering zipper sound. It's so strange. Yeah, it's – And the sandwich. When he pokes the sandwich and it makes – it's like a – it's like a dog toy or something. <laughs> yeah, it's surreal. The I, I don't know how many of our listeners have seen the show uh, – Tim and Eric awesome show great job on Adult Swim, but they, it's a it's a similar thing they do on that show all the time, which is, you know, a character will will set down a hot dog or something. I mean, it hits the counter, it makes this little like this little splat sound, and then they'll they'll be like putting they'll be getting their some hair gel on their hands to put in their hair, and as they're as they're sticking their fingers in the gel, you just hear this little it's like this really loud, squishy, obnoxious. It, it, it reminded me of that, just these sound effects that are like a slap in the face. But to me, I mean, for us, they were always comedic effect. There's the loud zipper actually shook me and Jenny, and we were just like, "Whoa, was that? <laughs> that's, a, that's a small zipper. That's a big sound for a small zipper." It it is, it is a it is a bizarre moment. Yeah, there's <laughs> yeah, there's a handful of moments that 
I, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but it definitely it, it lended an air of what is it surreality sur- surrealness to the uh, to the proceedings surrealism yeah well Bo uh, uh, who do you who do you think would uh, would enjoy this kind of movie yeah so I mean we've been sitting here we didn't even really dig into the the themes or a lot of what happens I haven't even mentioned oh uh, uh, several of my favorite lines and my favorite bits <laughs> from from the film. And, you know, there's just no, we just don't have the time. And frankly, it's just not as fun to listen to to Chris and I say these lines when... (laughs) Talking about the good old days of that movie we saw. Yeah, when you can can be watching the film. But I think this film, I think this film is sharp. I think it's a good film for anyone who likes classic, classic movies. I think they're going to be surprised, you know, they're going to be... A little bit uh, shocked by some of the dark turns it has, a little bit of the, you know, I mean, it gets, you know, the surrealism like we were talking about, these these various things that that uh, seem out of place for 1948 and not necessarily in a bad way. And for people also who don't really know whether they like classic Hollywood, I think this is very accessible to a modern audience. Oh, yeah. I think you can you can tune into this. And you're you're going to be able to enjoy it, even if you don't really, you know, take to movies like, uh, you know, movies like uh, Bringing Up Baby or other kind of screwball comedies. Maybe they're not your thing. I think yeah. you might still enjoy this one. Um, it's it's got caustic wit at times. It's got uh, you know the over the top slapstick kind of stuff, and it's all. Just uh, very clever as well, you know, and it's it's an it's an interesting, cleverly told little film in which really, I mean, yeah, it's remarkable to just think about. There's lots of themes that you can dig into, uh, you know. I mean, all this stuff goes on, and it's all in Rex. Everything happens in Rex Harrison's mind. By the end of the film, nobody's even none of the characters even understand what happened. He just moves on <laughs> thankfully yeah. having to explain what he was attempting to do would have been a whole other <laughs> ball of wax uh but essentially i think this is a movie that could be for anybody yeah no i agree completely this is, i think this is one of those rare movies that is that is an extremely accessible smart comedy which i think is kind of rare because uh I don't know. When you tell me if, – if you were to tell me that, you know, a film made in 1940-some-odd – what was it, 1948? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a smart, well-written comedy. In my mind, I picture myself watching a movie like that and sort of doing this little dry exhale out my nose like, <laughs> yes, <laughs> quite, quite funny, very, very good. But uh, the, the fact that something could be as smartly, cleverly written as this and elicit painful belly laughs from me – it's it taps into I think almost every kind of comedy gets served in this film. Yeah, you get it, you get dry wit, you get witty dialogue, you get slapstick, you get even some even a bit of raunchy humor. You get some dark, violent humor. There's pretty much every every flavor is on tap. I think that you, that you've nailed it right there because <laughs> it's true. I mean, you could call this an intellectual comedy. I mean, it's got you know minutes at a time of classical music it's got you know references and uh highfalutin dialogue and 
you know, these big concepts and it's got this darkness. But, you know, it's also a movie where we're laughing at some guy, you know, shooting another guy in the face with a fire hose. (laughs) I mean, it's really all over the map, but it pulls it off. It does. Uh, Well, Bo, um, I was uh, overjoyed at having watched this movie and I wanted to treat you a little bit. Uh, There was a movie that just came out like at the time of recording this. I think it's been out less than a week. Uh, the Hulu original Palm Springs with Andy Samberg and Kristen Melody, Melody, something, something such, Melody. Kristen, I'm sorry if you're listening, as I know you often do. I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name. Milioti. Milioti. Ah, that's right. That's right. Um, but yeah, Bo, uh, what what did you think of Palm Springs? It's it's kind of it, apparently it was Hulu's. It's it holds the record for Hulu's biggest opening, their their biggest premiere on their on their streaming service. What did you think? Yeah, which, I, I mean, I think that's a, a not only was it, um, I mean, I think the advertising campaign has worked pretty well. I think this would have been a big open anyway, but of course we are at the time of recording, you know, in a pandemic, the movie theaters aren't open. This is where films, people are itching for something, you know, for a new movie to come out. Yeah, yeah. And this one, uh, this was at, at Sundance, which I, I attended Sundance as a as a critic for Deep Focus Review. Ooh. But I got sick, possibly with the virus, and missed um, several opportunities. And then it was such a hot ticket that I, I never ended up seeing it. So I was I was glad when you picked it. Uh, so by way of introduction and all the usual spoiler warnings as we go in. But uh, yeah, Palm Springs, hot off the Hulu press, like we're saying, 2020 film just came out. Um, it's the first feature film for the director who has the delightful name of Max Barbacow. Bar Barbacow. <laughs> I don't know how you say it, but any any way you go is Sweet is fun. Um, written by Andy uh, Ciara, who was a staff writer on the show Lodge Forty Nine, hey! of which I am a fan. Yeah, you got me into that show. Uh, so, yeah, the, the plot concerns a time loop a la Groundhog Day, though this is a much more bombastic and irreverent comedy. And although I wouldn't say the movie is difficult to follow, the story is convoluted. Essentially, uh, we meet Niles, played by Andy Samberg, who is attending a wedding as his girlfriend's plus one. Uh, Niles' relationship with his girlfriend is essentially a sham, we see that she's cheating on him, and he in turn seems interested in the sister of the bride, Sarah, played by Kristen Milioti. Uh, Niles is able to smoothly display an immense knowledge of everything and everyone around him, and within an hour of meeting Sarah, they slip away to be more intimate. intimate. Uh, however, Niles is attacked by a mysterious figure and flees into a cave, telling Sarah not to follow. She does, however... And entering this cave causes her to wake up suddenly and repeat the same day. As it turns out, Niall has been doing this for quite some time, stuck in this time loop. And that's the basic premise. Two people caught in the same time loop living one day over and over. And the mysterious attacker is also a person stuck in the time loop because of Niles. His name is Roy, played by J.K. Simmons. And he is very resentful about being trapped in this day, and because of this, he often hunts Niles to kill or torture him, knowing that everything will reset once 
the day ends or once uh, Niles is killed. Is that have I have I got everything in there? <laughs> yeah, you just about summed it up, I think. So yeah, the whole thing is a sort of millennial. <laughs> the whole thing parts. is sort of a millennial, millennial Groundhog Day, and a way to meditate on nihilism and relationships through a now familiar plot structure, almost a kind of genre that's come up since Groundhog Day, I would say. You know, there's enough of these that it's kind of its own little subgenre of yeah uh, comedy. I mean, I guess you'd call it sci-fi, uh, time travel. I don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah. But this one gets a bit more into the sci-fi aspect. Yeah, it does. It, yeah, because this one, you know, unlike Groundhog Day, which famously uh, never questions the why of what's happening, it it leaves all of that to the audience. This one is much more, and I think this is of the style, you know, of the past decade. It it it's a much more of a meta comedy. It plays with. Well, I mean, I think this comedy is playing, number one, with the fact that we've all seen Groundhog Day. And I think this movie knows that we've all seen Groundhog Day. And yeah, I mean, if by some freak chance you haven't seen Groundhog Day, there's a chance that we're going to be spoiling that too, because there's just no way to really talk about this film without referencing the film that, you know, gave birth to it, which is Groundhog Day. So in Groundhog Day... um, we, along with the main character, Phil, played by Bill Murray, discover that he is trapped in this day and go through his journey. And one of the many sort of twists that we get with Palm Springs is that we see that we come into Andy Samberg having lived in this day for who knows how long, possibly years. He at one point says with seeming sincerity that he doesn't even remember what his job was. That's right. In, you know, life before he got caught in this time loop. So he has presumably been there a long time. And we there's a lot of nods to uh to Groundhog Day and just to the fact that we are now familiar with this idea, not only through movies, but also through video games of just sort of repeating, starting over, Yeah, you know, you died, back to the beginning, try again. And this idea of you have that knowledge, you know, the audience or the protagonist, but all these people around you don't have that knowledge. And therefore you become this sort of superior being through what you know. And the other twist of this film is that, you know, there are two other characters caught in this time loop as well. One, the romantic interest that we follow, and the other, the sort of sadistic, resentful Roy character uh, played by J.K. Simmons. Yeah. Who... Who is a treasure, a national treasure, J.K. Simmons. (laughs) I, I, I actually really liked... Uh, the characters in this film. That's that's one thing that's kind of interesting is at the start of Groundhog Day, uh, Phil Connors is an intentionally, you know, fun, snarky, but ultimately unlikable character who becomes likable as he goes through this transformation. Whereas uh, in in Palm Springs, each you know each of the the main characters has an arc. Every character trapped in this in this world does have an arc of sorts. 
But I wouldn't say that any of them, I mean, I guess Roy is a sadistic murderer, torturer type, but in my mind, at least, uh, Niles and Sarah, uh, both of them are, are obviously very flawed, especially uh, Sarah has some figurative skeletons in the closet, as we discover later in the film. Um, but uh, it felt less it felt less like a transformative experience than Groundhog Day in that both characters were to me at least had a pretty level range of likability from beginning to end. Uh, they, there are moments where you learn shocking stuff about both characters. You find out they both have secrets and that they both are a little bit less virtuous than we would think. Okay. So this, this is what I'm wrestling with here because I, I'm not sure to what extent I agree. I mean, Okay, so I think the characters are charming. I think they're funny. I never disliked the characters, so I think you're right to say that. But I think that with Groundhog Day, the way that Phil... We know from the start that Phil, Bill Murray's character, is a very flawed... You know, we enjoy it. We enjoy watching him in the way that... I guess maybe the difference is this. Um... I don't think I would as I don't think I would mind knowing Sarah interacting with Sarah or interacting with Niles but as fun as he is to watch I would not want to interact with Phil 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 Connors from Groundhog Day like he's not a person that I would want in my life um we enjoy seeing how sharp he is and the way that he um you know, can shut down other people with his caustic remarks and all that, but but he's not someone that you would want to have to work with. Um, that that being said, that gives us a place to start, and we get to watch his his arc and his transformation, with they, which they clearly play with in this one. You know, there's a point where yeah, he says, "Oh, you think that like maybe if you do like a if you become a selfless person, you'll break out. Go ahead and try it." You know, and she tries to. It, it, it tries to play with it. Well, we can go back to that in a little bit in a minute, but back to this this idea of the characters. I think that this is a film where, because you don't exactly know from the beginning yeah. what their flaws are, and they sort of become apparent. Yeah, exactly. As you go along, rather than at the beginning, like in Groundhog Day. Uh-huh. There's a lot of moments where if you kind of review it and sit back and think about the implications of, of who these characters are, yeah, they are pretty desperately flawed. Yeah. I no, mean, these are characters that that have done some things that are are quite despicable. And I think that that's you know, that's played with. There's a there's a speech that Niles gives about the which is kind of at the heart of the several philosophical points that this movie tries to to put over. And he's talking about a a candy bar and how like none of it really matters except the moment when you bite into the candy bar. And he's kind of talking about how it possibly to wash away his own guilt and also to um, get a point across to her. He, he's telling her, oh, you know, like all the things that you've done before, all the good and the bad, like none of that matters. Like what matters is right now, like the person that you are now. And... um you know, then there's a disagreement about whether, no, it's the whole package matters, like the things that you've done before 
are part of the person you are. And the film kind of raises that question, doesn't quite answer it in my mind. Yeah. But uh, yeah, but as you find out some of the things that the people have done, you know, it is it is kind of dark. You know, it's all presented as fun and games. And that's, you know, the tone of the movie. Mm -hmm. You know, the most I think this movie ever gets serious is the sort of rom-com series where they, you know, give some revelations about life, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um but there's a lot of there's a lot of dark stuff. There is. When you think about it, especially I was scrubbing through the film to pull up uh after having watched it to to get the clip and just reviewing a few things before we recorded. Uh-huh. And just um watching it in that discombobulated way, just jumping from clip to clip and noticing some of the things that they say and do. It's not quite out on the surface, but these are dark characters who have done some yeah. some dark things. Yeah, there's that moment. Uh, there, there's a moment partway through. It's actually kind of a pivotal moment for the character of Roy, where uh, Sarah's pretty much fed up. I mean, she's fed up through most of the movie, to be honest. But she's particularly fed up in this in this scene when they're being tailed by Roy in a cop car. And she decides, as Niles decides to get out and let him, you know, essentially he's planning to let Roy have his way with him for the umpteenth time, however many times it's been. Sarah gets into his cop car and ends up ramming him and pinning him against the car they were in, fatally wounding him, dooming him to a a slow, painful night in the ER. But uh, at one point, shortly after that, Niles tells her, you don't want to spend forever being a source of terror. He says something. Yeah. What is it? He says something to the effect of, believe me, I've tried it. It's not fun. Like it's not good to be a source of terror for other people, but he sounds like he speaks from experience. Yeah. And it, and it raises some of the Groundhog Day questions, right? That's the advantage of being, I mean, advantage so-called, I guess, of being a meta film coming after a movie that established the genre is that it, it plays with the idea that everybody wonders about, you know, when you watch Groundhog Day a few times, I mean, if it isn't obvious to, I mean, probably everyone that's listening to us knows this anyway, but we're both fans of Groundhog Day. Chris especially is is known for uh, loving that movie. Greatest film of all time. Yeah. And, um, you know, for those who have, have given it some repeat watchings, you know, you, you do start to think about like, wow, like the sort of, you know, the PTSD you would have from the things that that these characters have gone through. And, and with... With Phil yeah. Connors, it's mostly about being stuck there and about the things that he does to himself. I mean, he's rude to other people. He manipulates a couple people to get what he wants, but he's not, you know, torturing people. I mean, yeah, he's not evil. The, I mean, technically, I mean, evil, insofar evil. like that, he's so much more grounded in a kind of morality that we is sort of more acceptable and recognizable in ways that, like, for you know, there's a bit in Groundhog Day where he steals money. And to do that, even though, you know, it doesn't even occur to you within the world of that movie, but even though he could just go over there and just, you know, he could just bring a gun and shoot them all and just take the money because why not? Like, it's all going to reset. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. But but he doesn't do that. Instead, he learns how to, how to do it without anybody noticing him because he knows the world so well that he doesn't have to be, you know... And that's perhaps the harder route, but I don't think it even occurs to the character of Phil Connors as much as a jerk that he is. I don't think it ever occurs to him to just torture or kill these people or do anything like that. Yeah. Which this film gets there really fast. (laughs) It does. Palm Springs, you know, that's happening right away with these characters. You know, you get the idea that probably all of them 
have at some point killed somebody. Yeah. In yeah. this strange way. Yeah, for sure. And uh, you know, that's 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 a level of darkness already <laughs> that you're introducing to these characters and the way that they behave. And also I've got to say, uh I mean, what did you think about the fact that what did you think about the first suicide that we see? Because I was shocked, not by the way it's done, but by the circumstances. And that is when um, uh, Sandberg talks about how he's tried committing suicide many times to get out of this being stuck, and he can't do it. Yeah. And uh, because the day just resets no matter what. And he says to – he explains this to Sarah as she's freaking out. And then she tries to – to commit suicide by driving into uh, a semi. Into a semi truck, yeah. And they're only on like what, day three, I think? Or They're on day one. Wait, day – So far as I can tell. And this is where I was wondering if the movie the, – I, I tried to review it. And sometimes it's a little hard to tell because the way this movie jumps back and forth. Yeah. But he, it seems to me that he is literally sitting in there. I mean, there's a chance that it's been longer. But he is literally explaining to her how this works. It's the first time that he's even brought up suicide. You know, and that that's and immediately he brings it up and says it doesn't work. She's ready to try it. <laughs> I mean, to me, it felt like in the film, as far as I could tell, unless there was some tricky editing going on, this was day one for her. This is the first time she's repeating this day. And immediately she's ready to drive into a semi and end it all. Wow. Yeah. And I was a little bit shocked by that. It, yeah, it is a little bit shocking. And it's interesting. I, You know, you've talked about how this movie doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists with the knowledge that Groundhog Day exists. And it makes me wonder if they would have approached that more tactfully if we didn't have Groundhog Day as a baseline. Because when when the suicides start happening in Groundhog Day, it's in my opinion, it's one of the best sequences of the entire movie. Because by that point, we have watched him become so broken – and so miserable and so dead inside that on some level, on some dark, sad level, we, the audience, get it when he steps in front of a truck, when he drops a toaster in a bathtub. And it it starts out – I mean, it, it starts out funny in a, in a very, very dark way, killing himself in a tub with a toaster, stepping in front of a truck. And then it, t- it, 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 it turns very, very emotional and sad where he throws himself off a tower – and you start to realize just the gravity of what's actually happening and you realize that a, you get a very intimate and personal look at just how broken Phil Connors is at this point. And that movie treats death with a lot of severity, not just Phil's, the the old homeless man he tries to save toward the end as well. Um, for a movie about, you know, mortality and everything like that, they, they handle it very well. Whereas with this one, I, I think death was treated almost exclusively as a as a uh, a gag device, you know. Um, yeah, it really is. It's, it's. I'm trying to think of any moments where it carried weight. It's mostly a punchline. You you get a little bit where, I mean, basically you get Sandberg's speech about, you know, pain still matters. Like it still hurts you. You still have to go through the psychic damage of watching what you've done, and you don't want to just be that for other people, even if it's. You know, just for a moment, because I mean, I think one of the like one of the interesting things about these time loop type movies, right, is because it puts you in this uh, the protagonist that is in a position of such superiority. You really get to see what do people do with that when suddenly they're given all this power and there's not going to be something there's not going to be a consequence for it. You know, nobody's going to call them out on it. 
There's nobody there to slap their wrist for their bad behavior. What do they yeah. do with that power? And you see um, what kind of people they are and how selfish they're. I mean, the fact is that everybody's going to be somewhat selfish, right? But what this movie does is, is, is it gets, you know, you get to see kind of the fun they have with it. There's a there's a, a sequence where they, um, where the, the two, the, the main couple, they go and they dance in a bar and they wear costumes and they can do all this choreography because they've got all this time and they can react to things because they know the whole scenario so well and everything. And you get to see the kind of the fun that they have with it. And that's the thing. That's the sort of thing that if ever you've watched one of these time loop movies, you sit back and you... Yeah, that's fun and game. That's the, that's the fun part. That's where you kind of yeah. fantasize like, oh, what, what would I do if I was stuck in this day? And yeah, what, you know, what, what kind of things could I play around with? But immediately it's, it's like the idea... For me, I relate it to if I had like an invisibility cloak uh-huh. or, you know, the one ring or some method of going invisible. And you think like, oh, that'd be kind of fun. And then I immediately start thinking, no, it wouldn't. Like <laughs> just the... The things, the things that you could do if you could turn invisible. And how would you not? You know? Yeah. How could you resist? <laughs> and once you go invisible, you're immediate. You know, you know that you're going. I mean, what's the purpose of being invisible? Right. You're going to spy on people. You're going to hear things that you were never meant to hear. You're going to do things that you're not supposed to do. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And that's kind of what this is. You know, these time loops just put you in a position where you can find out and do things that you would never do. And it's... It's to the point where, so I had, this is my experience with this film. Most people, if they've seen it at all, they've obviously seen it very recently because it just came out. Yeah. So. It's fresh. I saw some trailers. I knew, or parts of trailers. I don't, I usually avoid trailers anyway. I knew that it was, that had some element of repeating a day. You know, the word ground, the the title Groundhog Day was thrown thrown around in connection to it. So I knew immediately, okay, so they're going to, somebody somehow is repeating a day. And so at the beginning of the film, I'm thinking, as I'm watching the events of the morning unfold, I'm thinking that, oh, like Groundhog Day, we're going to see this day unfold. And at some point, he's going to get stuck in this day and he's going to have to relive it. I don't realize that from the beginning, we're already watching him on day having been stuck in this day for years. 9,400. Yeah. And so it, it does. It puts this level of, you know, sort of I mean, he 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 messes around with people. Uh, frankly, he he manipulates and it's treated as a as a joke, and it is in the film. But basically, he manipulates perhaps almost everybody in the film for for sex. I mean, he's kind of. I don't want to take it this dark, but I mean, he's he's sort of abusing and and maybe even raping these people. Yeah, I mean, that's how that's what he's doing. Well, yeah, yeah. You, you think about like informed consent and right. Yeah, I in mean, some weird divine time transcendent way it's basically like statutory rape he's got you know he has access to knowledge that nobody else does which puts him in a position of absolute power over everyone else and he uses right. it specifically to score yeah and that and that comes across and that's an, an interesting thing about the film is this film ends up you know i said it's a it's a more irreverent comedy than than groundhog day it's also more more crass than than that film or the, you know, I mean, Unfaithfully Yours, we get hints at sexuality. We get hints at what he's doing, what he would do with his power. And that, and that's also dark, right? In his fantasies. Mm-hmm. And this one, um, we get to see, and, but I feel like 
most of what happens revolves around sex. And part of that is because this film has more to say about relationships. Um, This film is kind of like, I, I think this film is, how do we deal with different personalities? How do we deal with flawed people? How do we deal with um, nihilism and relationships. Yeah, yeah. How do we compute all these things into relationships? And that's at the heart of the film. Whereas Groundhog Day is, I think, much more ends up being more philosophical about life in general, rather than the way that we we treat people in in a relationship. And and part of that is because, like we've talked about, um, this isn't one person going through this. This is. Uh, three people going through this. Yeah, yeah. And so, how are they? How are they dealing with that? But yeah, um, in Groundhog Day, we see. I, I would say we see maybe two. You've seen the film more than I have. I think we see two ploys for basically kind of what could be interpreted as sexual manipulation, right? Mm-hmm. Where I mean, strictly sexual with Nancy and with the and Rita, the girl that he takes. No, not with Rita. With. Um, with the oh. maid, the costume girl. Oh, right. The girl he takes to go see. Uh... Because because what I'm saying is with Rita, I feel like, although he does manipulation there, I feel like Rita, the Rita is more like Sarah is to Niles in that there's there's more than that for him. It isn't just pure lust. Yeah. He is, uh, he is legitimately <clears throat> attracted to her uh, on more than a physical or sexual level. Yeah, yeah. And, but uh, but in this film, we get the idea that he's, you know, I mean, the joke is... Um, there's a sequence where we see that, you know, a surprising, we'll put it that way, a surprising <laughs> number of people that he is, yeah, that he has um, tried sexual exploits with, which is is one of the jokes of the film. Um, but but uh, anyway, kind of what I'm saying is by this strange way that it's gone about it, we see that even from the beginning can be viewed with a darker tone because we know that he. You know, he's he's carrying on his intimacy with his girlfriend, even though he has no feelings for her. He knows that she doesn't have feelings for him. He knows that she's cheating on him. Yeah. He knows all these things, yet he goes through these specific little things just to just to get what he wants and, and to move along. So it's it's weird in tone. It, it's it's a much more, you know, like I said, bombastic film. It's more of a, you know high energy comedy. Yeah, definitely. But but it does also in some ways reach into darker waters, I think. Yeah, I would agree. Than Groundhog Day. And it's interesting because I mean, I say this having enjoyed Palm Springs. I liked Palm Springs enough. Uh but at like you're saying with the especially with the sexual aspect of it, this is a movie that kind of wants to have its cake and eat it too as far as its characters are concerned because there is a moment a revelation, and this is this is kind of funny because it, it's at least a twist on the trope, but it still has that very common rom-com cliche of, oh no, the guy has a secret that's going to upset the girl, and then they're not going to see each other for several weeks, or it's going to... Yeah. It's like, oh, wait, let me, I can explain, runs off, you know, it's we've seen it a million times. At least in this scenario, the revelation actually is something worth getting upset about, perhaps even too worthy of getting upset over. (laughs) Uh, Early in the film, she asks if she was ever one of his sexual conquests, and he tells her, it's been so long, he can't remember, but he doesn't think so. And then at one point when they're arguing, he basically says, oh, please, we've been together hundreds of times. He very, he very casually just kind of drops that, like, I'll, like, yeah, like, 
you know, you ain't nothing. Like we've, we've been together a lot, which I mean, especially by the end of the film, we get the idea that, you know, Sarah is not necessarily a quote unquote traditional quote unquote pure type of person. She's got plenty of her own wrinkles. No, she's, but at the same time, um, I couldn't help thinking about groundhog day and the fact that what broke Phil in the first place was realizing he could have anything he wants. He could literally get anything he wants through manipulation and planning and keeping track of everything and just trying over and over and over again until he gets it right. And there's only one thing he can't get, and that's Rita. And so it depresses him and then intrigues him. And then what's really interesting is once he gets over his depressed stage, you can tell that he's not at a point where he says, okay, well, I, I couldn't get laid any of these other ways. What's what's my last resort for a way to finally get with Rita? Instead, he's fascinated by her. He's fascinated by how by how resolute she is and how incapable she is of being truly manipulated like everyone else. And so he, he, he basically almost kind of studies her less from a place of how can this benefit me and more from a place of what, what makes her such a good person. And it's interesting because up until that moment, we know that Phil is a scoundrel. And so when he decides to start looking into Rita and figure out why she's good and it's, it's even less about he does at one point confess that he just wants to be worthy of her. He just wants to deserve the love of a person like her. Well, he confesses it while she's sleeping, but we don't really get any moment like that in Palm Springs where, um, where I think that's what keeps Palm Springs as fun and unique and, and silly and, and interesting as it is. It's what keeps it firmly rooted in the more mundane rom-com category for me, which is it's more of a melodrama. It's more of a, so it's kind of kind of surface level character development because in the end they realize that they need each other and and you know that's really that's every rom-com ever whereas with groundhog day it's it's not that it's a true transformation of character which that's not to say you know i'm not going to i'm not going to lord that over palm springs kind of like it's kind of like like you were saying about uh unfaithfully yours there's lots of things that nobody would complain that it's not there necessarily but the fact that it is makes it that much better and groundhog day i think is is riddled with that as well just i don't want to hold it against palm springs i think palm springs does a good job executing what it set out what it set out to do but there is a reason that i'm going to probably keep watching groundhog day over and over and over again every year until i'm dead which i have been doing ever since it came out in 1993 <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think Groundhog Day, right, is a, I mean, it is, is a film which has romance and it has comedy, but it it does not, it does not easily fall into the genre of rom com. Where I think, I think Palm Springs is, you know, in a way, it is a millennial rom com twist on yeah. Groundhog Day. Yeah, <laughs> I was just gonna say that that's not to say that Palm Springs doesn't have its moments of of depth. I do think that Palm Springs has some really interesting and fun things philosophically that it gets into. I mean, there's one moment where – I mean, it, it's a little bit on the nose, I guess. But when they're – shortly before she tries her first suicide, you know, really early on in the game, he tells her, you know, that the best way to, to ease into it is just to accept that nothing matters. And she says, if that's true, then what's the point of living? And then he says, well, we kind of have no choice but to live. So – I guess you just kind of have to accept it 
for what it is. There's a really interesting conversation that uh, he has with with Roy toward the end of the film, where they they to me they get a little bit into I, I think one one of one of the sweeter and more personal parts of the movie that kind of lend it the heart that a little bit of the heart that Groundhog Day has that that thing that makes it stay in your in your head and your heart a little bit more. I've got a, I've got a clip from it that I could share. Yeah, so this is right when. This is after the the oh no moment where they've split because of the reveal. Is 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 that right? Am I right on the timing? That's and right. He, and now he goes for the first time. He's seeking out Roy when typically he runs away from Roy because Roy is always hunting him and causing him pain. And now he's seeking him out to to commiserate with him. Right? Yes. Yeah. And yeah, this is Niles at his low point. This is him. You know, it's again, every rom-com and frankly, most movies with the three act structure. This is the low point of the story where the character is is seeking guidance and, and brought brought to their lowest place. Um, and this is also after the moment that I mentioned earlier where Sarah rams Roy with his own cop car um, that 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 becomes relevant in this conversation. Uh, but he finds Roy at his house in Irvine, California, Irvine, California. He finds him in his in his hometown, and uh, he sees what kind of home and family life this guy has, and he actually has kind of an idealistic father husband kind of relationship with his family, and they're just kind of talking a little bit, and and they have this conversation that I'll just share a little a little piece of here. I had a lot of anger towards you, man. I mean, I'm not going to see my kids grow up. Never gonna walk a little Libby down the aisle. I guess I had my head up my own ass. I mean, I, I didn't really comprehend what I was putting you through. A little stint in the hospital really opened my eyes though. This was always a good day here, you know? My wife in the prime of her womanhood. Little Joey tending his dog shit. Libby's gonna do a family portrait later this afternoon where we're all animals. I'm a cuddly grizzly bear. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. You gotta find your Irvine. I don't have an Irvine. We all have an Irvine. So one thing that I kind of like that sets this apart from Groundhog Day, which is, you know, Groundhog Day is primarily about, it kind of centers on a poem that Rita reads to Phil partway through, the wretch concentered all in self. Gosh, I used to have the whole thing memorized. But it, 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 it kind of goes into how misery finds people who are self-centered. And again, with Groundhog Day, it's about how do you become a, become a better person, whereas this one is more a situation of how do you find happiness in a hostile and unfeeling universe? In a way, I guess it is kind of like Groundhog Day in the sense that, you know, when you're stuck in a place where you feel like nothing matters, where you feel like, you know, where you feel nihilism kind of taking over, if you're stuck in the same routine, you might as well do what you can to make it a routine that you can tolerate living in forever, which I, I do like that angle. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is a film, like we've said, that is sort of dependent 
on Groundhog Day, not only for trailblazing, but also for setting up the genres, sort of shortcuts that this movie can take. Yeah. And I think that this movie, for me, I found it dancing between a few things, which um, made it very much, in in many ways, a, a mixed bag sort of film for me. One, because it's just so, so full of crazy mix-em-ups. Yeah. But also because... <laughs> There, there are time, there are little moments where I feel like ah, I, I can I can see a writer who is good at writing, but I can, but I can see what he's doing, and I can say ah, oh, a little on the nose there, like oh, I see what you're you're setting this up here, and you kind of, you know, and those aren't things that you always want to be thinking about as you're watching a film, um, but at other times I you know, I I'm taken in, and I do think there are moments where it has, you know, there are moments which I'm laughing, there are moments where I'm thinking oh that that's you know that was a that was a clever turn, I, I wasn't expecting that, and there are moments of a little, you know, a little bit of heart, a little bit of realization. Yeah. Um, and let's just let's just jump into mine, if we could. My clip that I that I pulled out, which is from a little bit later in the film. This is when Sarah has, once she discovers that the romance that she's in is, you know, has some pain and some dark sides to it that she didn't expect, and that she was manipulated in ways that she didn't know. Uh, she decides that she is not going to take Niall's attitude and yeah learn to live with her circumstances. She is is determined to find a way out. This is her personality. She's going to find a change. And so she studies physics and all of this. And on kind of a another twist on Groundhog Day, this one explicitly jokes around with, you know, finding a way out of this through some sort of... Quantum mechanics, yeah. Yeah, yeah, quantum mechanics and a way that she can cause this explosion and, and possibly escape. And she doesn't know if escape is going to mean that um, they die for real this time or that they, you know, get out. And when they get out where, you know, if it's going to be some future date or what's going to happen. But she she tells Niles that she's going to go and he kind of begs her to stay and and she says no. And so they agree that they're just going to go their separate ways. And once they've agreed and she's off and she's about ready to make this, you know, quite possibly irreversible choice. Niles repents of his decision and goes through, mm-hmm. you know, a bit of a, a madcap chase scene to, to reach her in time. And this is what happens when he reaches her before she's about to um, enter the cave and do her explosion experiment. Head into the great unknown. Yeah. All right, here we go. Yeah. You get one more sentence. Okay. Okay, even though I pretend not to be, I've realized that I am completely codependent, but I'm cool with it because I think that life should be shared now and I need you to survive. Okay, that's your one sentence. I I need you to survive, comma, but it's so much more than that, Uh, colon. (laughs) I know you better than anyone knows you. And remember that night when we saw the dinosaurs? You said it yourself, in order to really know a person, you have to see the entire package, the good and the bad. And I've seen your package and it is excellent, Sarah. Ampersand, you're my favorite person that I've ever met. And yes, I know that it's crazy odds that the person I like the most in my entire life would be someone I met while I was stuck in a time loop, but you know what else is crazy odds? Getting stuck in a time loop. Dot, dot, dot. Ellipses. Ellipses, thank you. Called on ellipses. Ellipses. Look, I hope that blowing ourselves up works, but 
it's really irrelevant to me as long as I'm with you. And if it kills us, well then, <sighs> I'd rather die with you than live in this world without you. Emphatic period. That was a grammatical nightmare. Yeah, I'm hoping it didn't distract from my point too much. I mean, an emphatic period is just, a, it's an exclamation point. I don't want to seem desperate. sick of each other it's the best right so um you know obviously a great little comical twist on the sort of almost obligatory rom-com scene of you know the the reconciliation often through a wordy kind of sappy speech <laughs> yeah um and this does it in you know th this is I, I keep calling it a millennial film and it is in a few ways because because of its meta content because of the way it focuses on relationships in explicit kind of uh, looking at personality theory and uh, codependencies and and talking about it um, in that way, you know, and and we get the reveal from him, which is an interesting relationship take. What, what uh, she's about to say that she could be quite happy on her own. And he said, and he just went through saying like, yeah, I get it. I'm codependent, but uh, I, whatever, you know? And so we sort of see this, this union between these two personalities, the one where, yeah, it seems like, it seems as though she does have very sincere feelings for him. She's about to say that she, she loves him and she's, and she's willing to stick with him and take that risk, you know, which is kind of the her challenges yeah. according to her personality type and and for him um you know it's it's much more about you know, I think he he would be yeah. he would have been happy to stay in that world or to go on whatever it was as long as he was with her and and that's an interesting take I think on a relationship because usually in a rom-com, we see the 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 reconciliation is also a reconciliation a reconciliation on the idea of what the relationship is. It becomes ah, we had these different viewpoints and whatever it is, but by the end, we now have the same philosophies about what a relationship is, in addition to the love and attraction that we feel for each other. Whereas this film does twist it around a little bit by saying, okay, we still have attraction for each other as we already knew, we are reconciled and that we are allowing those that love to come through. And we are also reconciling the fact that we have different ideas of how a relationship should even work. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so it's an, it's an interesting take on, on that ending. And again, gives a, I think it sort of encapsulates the entirety of this film in that we see the ridiculousness of it. Um, you know, with her and, and she gets to be more of the, the straight, you know, and he and he gets to be more of the outlandish character, which, you know, Sandberg is uh, known for playing. And so he's all bombastic and crazy. She's a little, she's much more reined in and kind of the deadpan foil for him. And we get to see the ideas about uh, relationships, the the love aspect and the, you know, the, the kind of sci-fi aspect as they're about to go on. And blow themselves up. So I think um, a little bit of some of the things that I wrestled with in the film are present. Um, I, I don't know how much 
for me, the film profited by, I mean, by all means, it needs to, you know, well, number one, there's no reason that it has to adhere to anything that the Groundhog Day did. And in fact, there's every reason that it shouldn't because we don't just need a remake yeah. of a film which was great. Yeah, yeah. It's good to break some new ground um, there. So, right. It, ne- it needs to be doing sort of twists and all these and, and all these kind of things. But I'm not, I'm not sure how, how served it was by the sort of crass sexual nature because in trying in some ways to be a sex comedy, which uh, however one might feel about that is a thing that a movie could choose to be. <laughs> and it, it seems to, to move in that direction, but I think it wants us to, to care about these characters and to have, I think the way that it wants us to feel about their choices and about the people they are and about their relationship is a bit, for me, negated by some of the ways that it treats sexual manipulation throughout the film. And it does, you know, imply that that they are learning, but it's sort of in the way that a film might say, (laughs) you know, it's like watching a film that's like, oh, violence, that's a critique of violence, but is also full of like really cool action scenes, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And you're expected to kind of go away from that going, oh yeah, maybe it's wrong to like glorify violence, but wasn't that cool. But those explosions were real cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of what I was saying earlier about like how the show kind of wants to have its cake and eat it too, where it, it wants to have a lot of wild and unbridled fun with the premise, but it also wants us to end on a note, not identical to, but thematically somewhat similar to how we feel about Phil at the end of Groundhog Day, but they just haven't put in the same legwork. You know, with 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 Phil, it's never quite as depraved. It's never quite as, as you know, potentially mean-spirited. And, and yet we watch him go through the effort to improve himself as a person so that the person he is by the end of the, by the, end of the film feels earned. And with this film... It felt like it wanted to be kind of a philosophically musing kind of, you know, an exploration of human psychology and and philosophy and whatnot. And it also wanted to be, you know, a a silly, raunchy sex comedy. And the two just don't pair super well. I I don't know if I've ever seen something that pulls off that combo really well. Well, I, I just I think I think Palm Springs does a better job juggling it than most other films I've seen like it, which aren't many. Most movies either pick one or the other. Seth Rogen gets there sometimes with his films, like uh, Knocked Up. Uh, I think he produced Forty Year Old Virgin with Apatow. You get these films that are kind of raunchy sex comedies, but also kind of character explorations with some surprising moments of heart. But yeah, I it's it's I, there's always that kind of weird feeling of like either look I came to have stupid fun don't preach at me or look I came to like learn a bit about myself and the world here I don't need I don't need another blatant you know uh, graphic sex joke in my face or something so they kind of clash a bit yeah I mean. Which is interesting because we were just talking, right, about Unfaithfully Yours in the way that it gives us such a mixture of all these different types of comedy, right? And uh, succeeds in doing that, in balancing, you know, sort of intellectual wit with 
slapstick humor with kind of dark satire all all wraps up into a film that that succeeds at being entertaining but but I suppose um and not that I have anything at all in fact many of my favorite films I think are dramedies because straight drama is often it can be difficult to relate to, I think, because it's it's not the way that humans experience life. But with, I, I suppose, with Unfaithful Yours, it's not really trying to say anything at all yeah, in yeah. more than just a, a fun way. And so that that's all it does is it sort of zips by and any of its darkness is all in fun. Whereas this film, it tries for both. And I think there are movies that succeed at giving us both, but... This film does, but yeah, but not consistently for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are moments of heart, there are moments of comedy, and there are moments of misplaced comedy and misplaced heart. Yeah, that's a that's a good way to to sum that up. I think there's there's a lot of good parts that are shuffled in a weird, uh, pretty weird way. But I mean, it, it has good bones. It's 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 a pretty fun flick. I I feel like you know I I feel like most people. In spite of being a very R-rated comedy, I you know for its target audience, I do think it's pretty accessible. the The, the time loop mechanic isn't that hard to figure out. I feel like if you're if you're into Andy Samberg's Lonely Island, his his buddies, the their kind of screwball comedy stuff like Hot Rod and whatnot, there's there's plenty of that kind of flavor to be found here. Yeah, he's I'd say he's he's a couple notches down from what's his cop show. Oh, Brooklyn Nine Nine. Yeah, you know he's still there's still plenty of Sandberg loopiness, but it's not quite up to eleven like it is in Brooklyn Nine Nine. <laughs> yeah, because I, I mean this world is much, despite the fantasy, this world is a much more real world than the world of Brooklyn Nine Nine. But it is to your point, you know, if you are a Sandberg fan, you know you do get to see him doing his his shtick, which I I think he pulls off reasonably well, having that. The ridiculous character and the ridiculous energy at which he plays that character of himself, which he is always a bit of a version of, and still adding in a few moments of poignancy here, I think he does that well. Yeah, yeah. I think after seeing this film, I'm I, I feel like he's maybe a year or two away from getting his own The Truman Show. His you know his his moment to show that he can really actually really Has act some dramatic chops. Yeah. You have his own, well, you know, like Will Ferrell, it was everything must go. I mean, he's probably had other dramas before then, but you know, it's, it's, it's nice to see comedy actors, you know, I mean, heck Robin Williams had dead poet society and goodwill hunting. You, I, I, he, did you know that Andy Samberg is like in his early forties? Is he really? He's like, he's like over 10 years older than us. Yeah. Well, isn't that wild? He's, Actually makes me feel a little bit better about myself because with how much living he's done, it seems like he's about 10, 10 or 12, 15 years ahead of us. So it's good to know that he actually is. So it's not too late. Yeah. Well, <laughs> given the the maturity of the level of maturity that he manifests in his personality <laughs> makes it surprising, I suppose, that he's in his 40s. <laughs> Keeps him youthful. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if you if you want to retain your youth, just have a, a very immature sense of humor, and it'll keep you young forever. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I feel like that that's who I think would uh, would would enjoy the film. Um, if they're fans of if you're if you're a fan of Groundhog Day or time loop movies in general, I, I feel like this is among the better ones. To be, 
I mean, all cards on the table. I think most movies that try to pull off the time loop thing don't they don't pull it off very well. Um, most of them stumble in the wake of Groundhog Day. Uh, and as Bo has said, I'm I'm a bit biased. I think Groundhog Day is perhaps the single greatest achievement that humanity has has accomplished. But uh, <laughs> I, I do think that Palm Springs is a more successful effort than you'll see from other ones. So if you're a fan of the time loop type stuff, you you, you could do worse. Um, and if you're a fan of of Kristen Milioti, my word, her can I just say her eyes are huge? Not not like in a bad way. They are. She, she's she, she's kind of Disneyfied. Yeah, she's got Disney princess eyes. She's got Disney eyes. Yeah, which is which is remarkable. I, I want her to be in more. I mean, she's a fantastic actor. She's got a lot of charisma. I I want her to. I think so too. I want her to be in yeah. more stuff. She's 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 really good, and she yeah. The, I mean, the eyes alone allows her to sell all sorts of vulnerability and meekness, but she can also be a a very strong, uh, willful character. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I th- I think I mean I. Obviously, her character is is plenty flawed as well. Um, hey, we didn't even necessarily go into her flaws. We left a little surprise for you in case you're listening to this without seeing the movie. Watch it to figure out why her character is bad. <laughs> What's not to like? Yeah, no, I, I do. I do think she was my favorite character in the movie, um, which is saying something because J.K. Simmons, that guy steals my heart every time he's on screen. And in what movie are you ever going to see? I mean. And my and my plug right for for who this movie is for. This movie is for anyone that ever wanted to see, <laughs> ever wanted to see J.K. Simmons, uh, shoot Andy Samberg in the chest with an arrow as Andy Samberg sits in a recycling bin. <laughs> you know, if that's something, <laughs> that's an image that you want in your life. I didn't life. know I needed it, but there it was, scratching Looking that itch. But yeah, this was this was a good batch. I think this was a good episode. I mean, the, the, I mean, we'll let the viewers decide. But for me, as a person who got to watch movies, this was this was a really fun episode. Um, <laughs> I'm just gonna go ahead and say it: best work we've ever done. Uh, yeah. So yeah, fun movies playing with. I mean, uh, these are movies where we get to play around with storytelling and what you know what story structure and cinema can do. We get to see. You know, fantasies play out. We get to see perspectives jostled around. We get to see manipulation explored in both films in in a very interesting way. I think in both movies we get to see right, yeah, the way that a person wants manipulation to go, and the realities of manipulation in in both films. Um, and some of the you know, in some in one, it's more hard hitting than the other. But uh, it's there. And, and, you know, both, I think, in their own way, have something actually beneficial, maybe, to say about manipulation and how it works. One, in just the, you know, in the, the petty foolishness of our assumptions. And another, in the, you know, real-life emotions that are the, the blowback, you know, the fallout from messing around with people's lives. Yeah. Now that's a really good point. Uh, but but both of them both of them wrapped up, you know, in in comedies. I mean, neither of these movies is neither of these movies is uh going to you're not going to come away from either of these with a heavy feeling. These are both is both uh light in spirit uh when all is when all is said and done. Yeah. Well, we want to thank you guys for tagging along with us while we meander our way through 
uh, learning life lessons and, and uh, you know, whatever it was we did here today. <laughs> yeah. Dissecting the human condition under the microscope of film. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we'll, we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you in two weeks at the next episode. Uh, uh, keep on, keep on kicking and, and don't stop uh, streaming. If it ain't kicking, it ain't streaming. That's what I say. Oh, dear.